Pastor Jonathan for inviting me to share God's word with you this, this morning, still morning time. I'm sure all of you are looking forward for lunch, right? Uh, I, I understand I was given an hour, right? Don't worry. Uh, I, I preached at the Saturday service and uh, it was a bit too long. So I'm giving a more abridged version of uh, this morning's sermon. So um, most of you have been wondering, uh, what a strange name I have. Uh, my, name is, my full name is Hambali Leonardi. Uh, I originally from Indonesia. I moved to Singapore when I was six years old. So I became a Singaporean after serving my national service. When I was growing up, I hated my name because they, the, my classmates in school would tease my name. They call me Hambali. What's that? Ham from Bali? Uh, hamburger, lemon Bali, yeah. But later on, my mom shared with me, uh, Hambali means hamba. Hamba, if you know Malay, hamba means a uh, servant. So Lee is small. I'm, I'm not really small, <laughs> uh, but I'm, we are servants of God. So that, and I thought, wow, that's a very nice meaning. So I, I rejoice in that name. So uh, before we dwell into God's word, let's commit this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this beautiful time that we, you welcome us to sit at your feet, to worship you, and to listen to your word, and to partake in the sacraments later on. We hold on to your promise that your word will never return empty. So may the, uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So friends, have you recently received a wedding invitation? Are you excited when you get a wedding invitation? Most of you are like, oh no, cost money, have to dress up, find a you know, uh, babysitting arrangement and so on. Yeah? So many of us uh, are very difficult ah, here go, uh, to accept a wedding invitation. There are so many factors to consider. Uh, do you know the bride and groom and the families personally? Yeah, sometimes you have like an ex-colleague that you knew like 20 years ago and then they invited you like, who, uh, who is this person, right? Or, and is the wedding banquet accessible by public transport? Uh, is, does it clash with your schedule? Do you have someone to take care of your young children? Uh, will you be held in a fancy hotel and you have to do some mental sum and how much money you have to prepare for the ang pao? There are so many factors to consider. Uh, for us in, uh, in, uh, in Indonesia, Weddings are big, big affairs. It's like a business convention. Yeah? Hundreds of guests will be invited. And, and I assume most, most of the time, the bridal couple only know about 10% of the guests. Yeah? There are long-distance uh, relatives, acquaintances, and business associates of the families. And many guests would come for a free, lavish meal, even when they were not invited, because they don't, uh, there's no like, guest list where they check. So just come. Everyone come. And many are invited, and many more uninvited guests come for the wedding feast. Thankfully, most weddings in Singapore are more down to earth. I like weddings in Singapore. They're very more chill, eh? more relaxed. And these days, uh, especially during COVID, wedding couples prefer more intimate, more uh, you know, uh, gathering instead of those lavish big weddings. And so uh, I think a few weeks ago, I attended a wedding at this place, this beautiful sanctuary. If you might know him, uh, Amos and Evangel. Evangel yeah? They are, I think, from the Chinese congregation. So it was a very a nice big wedding, but it's pretty long. It was a, because it was just before lunch, so I was a bit hungry for the wedding feast. Yeah. So, uh, so imagine, by the way, uh, speaking of that, I, as a pastor, I solemnize 
over weddings. And, and I always like Christian weddings. You know, I, I hope you will rekindle instead of thinking of the logistics of coming to a wedding, especially a Christian wedding, come and be part of this celebration. Because every time we attend a wedding, a Christian wedding, it reminds us of the union between Jesus as the bridegroom and us, the church, as his beloved bride. So it's a beautiful union. Yeah? And this is something we look forward when Jesus comes again. So uh, in today's gospel reading, Jesus tells us a parable of a wedding feast of the king's son. Imagine receiving an important invitation to a royal wedding. For us in Singapore, we don't have any royalties. But imagine someone famous, a celebrity or influencer yeah, for these days. What great honor and privilege to be invited. Would you readily accept it? Would you? In this parable, I find it puzzling that the invited guests refuse to attend. And let me, uh, this is what, oh, sorry. This is what the parable says. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. This is referring to God yeah, uh, inviting his people and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they will not come. My goodness, why would they not come for this very important occasion? The gospel doesn't explain why. So what did the king do? He made a second appeal in verse 4. Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. Maybe they, they're not so uh, attracted to the wedding. So let me give the menu of the wedding feast. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. For a Singapore context, maybe, I don't know, bird nest soup, you know, uh, lob, uh, lobster salad and all those delicious food. And everything, everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The king humbled himself and made a second appeal. And if I was the king, I wouldn't even bother making such a, a plea to these ungrateful guests. I said, good riddance. But the king showed his grace and generosity in persuading them with delicious food, with his extravagant hospitality. Everything is ready. Come. Come to the wedding feast. But what were their response? Change of heart? Gratitude? Enthusiasm? And this is what the parable says. They paid no attention and went off. One to his farm and another to his business. They completely ignored the king's generous invitation and hospitality. They were indifferent, uncaring, and bochap to the king. They continued to return and mind their own business. Their mundane and busy lives were more attractive, more appealing than participating in the royal feasts. Who do you think are these people who dared to ignore God's invitation to enter and participate in his kingdom? Jesus was likely referring to the religious leaders of his time who disregarded his messenger, God's messenger, especially John the Baptist's message of repentance. And John the Baptist warned strongly against their disinterest. In Matthew chapter 3, he says, You 
very strong language. I can't imagine Pastor Jonathan calling all of you guys like that. Eh? I'm sure you guys are not like that. Eh? You brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping, uh, keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. These religious leaders ignored John's message because they clung and trusted only in their religious heritage, traditions, and pedigree. They proclaimed, we have Abraham as our father. And it's like the wedding guests who ignored the king's second invitation. They paid no attention and went off to their farms and businesses, which represent what they are very familiar or have confidence in. Their so-called farms and businesses give them a false sense of security and identity. They were busy with their religious traditions and activities and business and completely miss God's gracious invitation to them. For us today, what are these so-called farms and businesses that appear to provide more security and assurance than God himself? What are the things that make us so busy that we ignore and even miss God's kingdom invitation? They could be the fields and barns of our careers, our finances, positions, resources, relationships, and academic achievements. And we trust and hold on this thing more tightly than God's truth and promises. For us in Singapore, as a meritocracy, our achievements define our identity. And often when we meet people, oh, what do you do? And if you go on a taxi driver or grab driver, they ask you, how much do you earn? Yeah, these are all the questions. So your worth is based on numbers, on the numerical numbers. And we sometimes put those, our confidence and trust in those things. Last week, the reason, uh, last week's Hamas attack on southern Israel it's a reminder that nothing man-made is foolproof or trustworthy. The Israel Defense Forces is known to be highly capable. It's one of the best military armed forces in the world. The Israeli people put a lot of faith and confidence in the Defense Forces. But ironically, they were outsmarted by the Hamas militants who came in, invaded in motorcycles and hang gliders with giant fans. The attack on Israel was horrible. It was brutal. But Israel placed so much confidence in their defense forces, but they tragically failed and caused hundreds of deaths. It's an important lesson for us. Don't trust in the man-made symbols of power, security, and wealth, for they will always fail, and they will always disappoint. Let us be mindful that our trust and confidence are not on the farms and the fields and the barns and the businesses of this temporal 
kingdom. And for us, we are sitting in a very beautiful sanctuary. You recently constructed, built this extension as a wonderful site. But we don't put our trust in buildings, in structures, or in facilities. We put our trust in the eternal kingdom of God. So as Christians, we might fall into the danger of indifference and self-righteousness. Like the Pharisees, we pride over our religiosity and traditions more than our relationship and identity in Christ. Instead of saying, we have Abraham as our, uh, as our father, we might say that we have our Bible knowledge, our church traditions, our church attendance and memberships as our so-called father and security. For us Anglicans, sometimes we can be in the danger of clinging to our traditions so tightly. Church traditions are good. Bible knowledge are good. But if we put them higher and they define our identity instead of how God defined our identity, then we are in trouble. Because we can be consumed with a sense of spiritual superiority and pride that we are better than other Christians, we are better than other people. So we need to be mindful. Like the Pharisees of Jesus' time, they knew the scriptures very well, but they lacked the true relationship with God. And sadly, they ignored John's message and rejected Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. I hope all of us here this morning, our desire to gain Bible knowledge should deepen our relationship with God rather than puff up our spiritual pride and ego. Reading and studying God's word should actually humble us instead of puffing us up. Before I became a priest, I served in children and youth ministry. That's how I work uh, closely with Kafun in her chaplaincy work at St. Margaret's Primary School. And I know some, in my church, I know some young people from good Christian homes. And I assumed that these youths would turn out okay because the parents were mature Christians and some of them were serving as church leaders. Some of them turned out wonderfully and remained strong in their Christian faith. Unfortunately, some backslid and even left the faith completely. I still follow them on Instagram. I'm not stalking them, and, uh, but you can see that their lifestyles are no longer of God. Having a good Christian tradition, pedigree, and heritage do not necessarily translate to a solid spiritual formation. We have Abraham as our father. It's a sorry excuse for Christian maturity and discipleship. Never assume or take for granted, and I'm speaking to the parents here, that your children and your youth will always remain in the faith. Pray for them. Disciple them to fear the Lord, to remember that God is their father. Love them unconditionally. Abraham and their religious pedigree is not their father. Even being in a church doesn't mean that they are mature or spiritually formed in Christ. They must have a living, genuine faith in God and, and teach them 
that the world is not their father. Strengthen their identity and destiny in Christ and commit them to the Lord instead to the world. Returning to the parable, how else did this people respond to the king's generous and gracious invitation? In verse 6, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. And we know from the gospel that John the Baptist, God's messenger, was eventually imprisoned and killed by Herod Antipas. And Jesus himself was shamefully persecuted, arrested, and killed at the urging of the religious authorities and leaders. It's not surprisingly, friends, that the world rejects God's invitation and message of salvation. Jesus said in John 15 that the world will hate and reject us. This is what he says. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and friends, we are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world to take you out. Therefore, the world hates you. Are those comforting words? The world hates you. Tell that to your neighbor. Just now there was, earlier was, tell that you're beautiful right now. The world hates you. Can you receive it? But not, even though the world hates you, God loves you. God accepts you. And that is the greatest assurance that we can ever have. So Jesus also adds that the violent oppose God's kingdom. In Matthew 11, from the day of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And you can see that happening even today. In some countries, the church is under severe persecution and attack. When I tell my friends that I'm a pastor, they say, oh, very easy job eh? in Singapore. Aircon, you know, good food, that's why I'm so... <laughs> you know, everything is so well on. You know, everything is so professional. But I've pastored friends in other countries that are going through persecution and attack. So in Singapore, we are very blessed to enjoy peace and harmony. In Indonesia, where I come from, in the past, there were religious opposition as well to the building of churches and to the gathering of church. Can you imagine on Sunday, if you come to, ch- to most of them, they can't build church, so they rent shop houses. And when they gather, the neighbors, the non-Christians will come and antagonize them and uh, harass them. But today at Good Shepherd, anyone harass you from coming to church? Didn't? Condominium residents come and scream at you and shout at you. No, we are so privileged, aren't we? Yeah. So, but one day, we never know when is that one day, Singapore will hate us and will reject us. What will be our response? Will we stop evangelizing? Will we stop gathering to worship God? There's no easy answer to this difficult question. I can only say that we should prepare ourselves while there is still peace and daylight. Jesus warned us in John 
chapter 9, verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus was referring to his eventual death. But we can also draw an important lesson for the church today in preparing for the eventual night of hate and opposition. While there is daylight, what should we do? Equip ourselves, be grounded in God's truth. When, there is, when we still have access to the Bible, to Christian materials and resources, equip yourself, friends. Yesterday, the DBS app, everything basically, ATM system went down for 12 hours. Were you guys struggling? Yeah, you felt so lost, right? That's why you must never put all your money in one bank, okay? That's my advice. Put in other banks like OCBC, UOB, yeah, all that. I'm not being sponsored by them, by the way. Yeah, so spread your eggs. Don't put all your eggs in one bank. And we feel so lost. Imagine if one day you have no access to your Bible app, and then you say, hey, I've given away all my printed Bibles. Where are they now? That's it, gone. No more electricity, no more Wi-Fi. And maybe no more church building. What should we do? We saw a glimpse of that. If you remember COVID, you remember COVID? <laughs> it was about when we, there was a lockdown, we can't gather in church and all those things. And by the way, that is just a dress rehearsal for far worse things to come. And that's what, God, that's what the Bible says. Yeah, I'm not saying that because of my opinion, but that's what the Bible says. The worst uh, will be ha- is yet to come in that sense. Yeah? But do not fear. So while there is still daylight, equip ourselves. Disciple your children and your young generation to be faithful and courageous in God's truth. Continue to share the gospel. Do outreach activities and draw many to COGS. And I, if you look around this century, there's many sp- many uh, uh, space for to bring in more people. I'm so encouraged by your Christmas at Queenstown that even the whole Anglican Diocese has heard about you guys, that you're doing wonderful things to draw many residents to, to tell them about Jesus, this, the reason for the Christmas season. So I hope you will continue to do good and to shine brilliantly in the Queenstown neighborhood. So returning to the parable, what are was the king's response to their terrible treatment of his servants. Verse 7, The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And the king rightfully brought judgment upon these offenders who persecuted and killed his messengers. There is a severe punishment to those who oppose God and persecute his servants, his church. God is not passive in allowing evil and opposition to reign and remain unpunished. God, our God, is a just and holy God who judges and avenges his people. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but live it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Strong words, isn't it? We always picture God as very lovey-dovey, like a teddy bear, right? But here we read from Scripture that God says, Vengeance is mine. God is the avenger, the ultimate avenger. 
So friends, are you facing opposition for your Christian beliefs at home, at work, or in school? Perhaps you're the only believer in your family, and you face so much opposition, so much trials. Scripture tells us, never avenge yourself, but allow God to fight the battle for you and let him judge your enemies. In the meantime, how should we respond to our enemies? Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Easy instructions? What do you guys think? Easy? Yeah, if you don't have anyone to forgive, of course. But if you have someone persecuting you, it's very difficult. Overcome evil with good? And this is a strange, strange mandate. The world teaches another thing. The world teaches you to seek revenge for your enemies. But God tells us to forgive and do good. And that is God's spiritual weapon against our enemies. It is easier said than done, of course. Especially if your enemies have caused so much hurt and sorrow. Imagine if terrorists killed your family, your loved ones, like what happened in Israel. Are you able to overcome such evil with good? Are you even able to show kindness to these evildoers? I don't have an easy answer, but I can only say that God is our ultimate judge. And we hold two truths in tension. One is knowing that God will judge our enemies, and the other is knowing that we have a choice to grant mercy and compassion to them. It is counterculture, as I said earlier. Instead of seeking revenge, we are supposed to allow God to avenge our sorrows. And on our part is to provide grace and mercy to them. And you know, the war between Israel and Hamas will continue to escalate as as they avenge and attack each other. But for us, the church is called to be counter-culture. In this conflict, are we called to take sides? Of course, Hamas was wrong to inflict terrorist attacks. But we need to also remember in in the Palestine, uh, in the Gaza Strait, and even in the West Bank, there are Christians as well. There are believers like you and me. So we need to remember them as well. And we pray that the enemies, in the sense, these people who are so filled with hate and revenge will be able to forgive and find peace. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let us continue with the parable. In this parable, those whom the king has invited didn't come and rejected his invitation. So what did the king do? He did a, a diff, totally different. He said, he said to his uh, servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all, 
all whom they found. And here, there's an interesting verse here. Both bad and good. So the servants did not go out and look for only the good people, but also the bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Friends, this is a beautiful picture of God's extravagant hospitality and love. The invitation is to all without distinction. His kingdom is open to everyone regardless of their past or present circumstances. And we see that in the Gospels of how Jesus welcomed and interacted with diverse groups of people of high and low status. He mixed with sinners, tax collectors, rulers and Pharisees, prostitutes, children, the Samaritan and Syrophoenician women, the unclean, lame, sick, lepers, blind, and demon-possessed. And that is the picture of what the church should be. Instead of, for us in Singapore, the church is mostly middle-class, English-speaking, perhaps. But God's kingdom is very diverse. People from different, different backgrounds. It's not only for the privileged few of right pedigree and background. It is for everyone. And in today's context, if God calls COGS to invite and gather all that you can find in the streets and neighborhoods, both bad and good, into this church sanctuary, or even for uh, Christmas at Queenstown, who do you think are these groups of people? Will they dress and behave like most of you? Imagine someone who smells, who, never, who have never taken a bath for days, who curses, who are mentally unwell, who have disabilities, who are struggling with addictions, who have special needs, who are attracted to the same gender, who are so different from you, is sitting beside you in this beautiful sanctuary. What would be your response? Jesus' parable teaches us that they were found to be worthy of being invited into the king's wedding feast, into his kingdom, into his church. So we will need to welcome them. But you might stop them from accepting, but... What might stop them from accepting God's invitation and coming? What do you think are some things that stop people who are different from joining this church? What are the obstacles that, we, that hinder people from coming into his kingdom, into COGS? These are the questions that this church community and leadership need to wrestle and address with God's truth and values. And I encourage you to Dialogue so that this church will truly exemplify God's invitational love and hospitality. Sometimes for us, uh, with a new church building, by the way, St. James' uh, building is about 15 years old. And I come from another church uh, at St. Andrew's Cathedral. Last time they also built this underground sanctuary. So when it was still brand new, pristine, everyone said, hey, don't dirty this, don't dirty. Everyone must like behave themselves, right? And sometimes we put the building, the structure, higher than people. 
But actually, we need to remember the building serve the people, not the people, not the other way around. Yeah, so we need to be mindful of that as well. So it's okay if it's a bit dirty here and scratch. It's all right. Yeah, nothing lasts forever <laughs> except God's kingdom. So as the parable unfolds, we see another character here, a guest who is not wearing the proper wedding garment. When, when the king came to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It, it, this seems to be a very harsh treatment for someone who is not wearing the right garment, don't you think? It's like, God is a fashion police. Huh? <laughs> Do people have to take wedding dress code seriously after reading this parable? In ancient Jewish culture, a wedding garment was a symbol of purity and righteousness. It was a sign of respect and honour for the host and the occasion. And the host usually will provide the wedding garments for all of his guests. It was a sign of his generosity and hospitality. In this parable, the king provides wedding garment for all his guests. But one guest refuses, arise and refuse to, refuses to wear the wedding garment. It was a sign of his disrespect for the king and for the occasion. As a result, the king orders him to be thrown out. The wedding garment is important in this parable because it represents the righteousness that is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is teaching that we cannot enter God's kingdom based on our own effort or merit. We must cast away the old, tattered rags of sin, self-centeredness, self-righteousness, and self-glorification, and put on the garment of Christ. Isaiah says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all, all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments, filthy rags. We must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And this righteousness is imputed to us by our faith in Christ, not by our works or traditions. Just to add, this is what Isaiah said, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. All of you are clothed with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The wedding garment is important because it represents Christ's righteousness, Christ's love for us. Today, what garment are you wearing in your life? Are you still clinging to the old polluted rags of your past and sinful habits? Jesus is warning us not to be like the guest who refuses to wear the wedding garment and was thrown out. The invitation to be clothed in Christ is still valid and open to everyone. So friends, don't miss it. And I want to end with this verse. The parable, the parable reaches its climax with this profound statement from Jesus. For many are called, 
but few are chosen. And it reminds us that God's invitation is open to all of us. And everyone, and our only response is to accept his invitation. Many are called, many are invited, but few accept his invitation. Few accept, few are chosen in that sense. So I just want to encourage us to remember that God's invitation is for everyone. And on our daily part, we are making a conscious choice to receive his invitation, to carry the cross, to honor him, to love him, and to serve him. Shall we pray?